0: to be effective in the paranormal you must be grounded
1: Ladies and gentlemen yes. be
2: Ladies and gentlemen,
3: Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with the penultimate edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Yes, it is the second-to-last episode in this cycle of programs here on Banal of America Audio, and in keeping with the final four of Season 5, we have got an amazing conversation for you here this week. Before I preview all that, please allow me to throw one last final plug in here for the Exeter UFO Festival. Coming up on Saturday, September 4th in Exeter, New Hampshire. Speakers include Stanton Friedman, Peter Robbins, Phil Imbrogno, New England Mufons, Steve Furmani and I will be serving as MC throughout the proceedings plus there's going to be fun and games arts and crafts for kids you can find out more about it at the website www.exeterufofestival.com e x e t e r u f o festival.com and if you want to hear even more about the big event Stick around to the end of the program because we've got a special pop-in from Peter Robbins, who, as I just said, will be one of the presenters at the big event. We'll be previewing it in depth and having some fun and some laughs along the way. So even if you can't attend the Exeter UFO Festival this weekend, be sure to stick around and listen to the Peter Robbins pop-in at the end of the show because it is a lot of fun. Now that we've taken care of that, let's get down to business on this week's edition of the program. As noted, it is the penultimate edition of BOA Audio Season 5, and we're welcoming superstar esoteric researcher Rosemary Ellen Guiley for a jam session that covers really a myriad of paranormal topics. Anyone who's familiar with Rosemary Ellen Guiley knows that she has researched just about every genre in the world of the paranormal. So going into this, I knew it was going to be damn near impossible to focus on one specific topic, considering her remarkably prolific knowledge on the different subjects in the world of esoterica. So to be honest with you folks, I pretty much just threw the playbook out the window after the introductions and let the conversation go wherever it took us, and thus it turned into your typical BOA Audio Jam session. Nonetheless, now in retrospect, I can give you a thumbnail look at what we're going to be talking about here in this conversation. Kicking things off, as usual, we'll find out how Rosemary first got started researching and writing about the paranormal, and she'll sort of give us a look at what the scene was like in the 1980s when she started out. We'll get some insight from her on her latest investigation with Phil Imbrogno into the gin phenomenon, We'll muse about the need for a multidisciplined approach for researching the esoteric. Then we'll delve into the problems and benefits of the ghost-hunting fad that has exploded over the last few years. Along the way, we'll talk about interdimensional beings, real-time spirit communication, and the potentially troubling implications regarding the truth of the afterlife should it ever be discovered and revealed to the public. Plus, we'll get advice from Rosemary for newcomers to the world of the paranormal. What does she think they need to do as they begin their trek into this jungle of strangeness that is the esoteric? So, as you may have surmised here from the thumbnail, look, it is definitely a conversation that contains some truly thought-provoking and deep insights from a researcher who has delved into nearly every topic in the paranormal spectrum rosemary ellen guiley trust me my friends this is an episode that will definitely have you thinking long after we're done talking for those of you who are unfamiliar with rosemary ellen guiley allow me to provide you with a little background on her. rosemary ellen guiley is a leading expert on the paranormal and supernatural with more than 40 books including nine encyclopedias and hundreds of articles in print on a wide range of paranormal spiritual and mystical topics she possesses an exceptional knowledge of the field she has approximately one million copies of her books in print her encyclopedias on ghosts and spirits angels vampires and werewolves magic and alchemy witchcraft demons dreams mystical and paranormal experiences and saints are considered essential sources for authors researchers film and documentary producers and paranormal investigators Her work has been translated into 41 languages, and has been selected by major book clubs around the world. She appears in television programs, documentaries, and docudramas with paranormal themes, and makes numerous media and lecture appearances, including speaking engagements at colleges and universities. In addition to all that, she conducts original field investigations of haunted and mysterious sites. Her website is www.visionaryliving.com, pretty simple, all one word, visionaryliving.com. Check it out. With all that said, let's get cooking, my friends, and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on August 16th, 2010. Rosemary Ellen Guiley joins us for a Paranormal Jam Session on BOA Audio Season 5. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of been All of America Audio. I am really excited about this week's guest. Another big-name speaker, another uh, A-list superstar in the world of the paranormal who we're going to be talking to, and definitely another interview that's been a long time coming. I'm surprised we're here closing out our fifth season, and we have not had this guest on the program, so I'm very happy to have brought her here to the show. She's the author of 40-plus books on a whole variety of of paranormal topics. I mean, just the sheer breadth of topics that she's investigated, researched, and written about is just mind boggling. She truly is a Renaissance woman in the world of esoterica. She's straight up uh, a legend in this field, so I'm really excited to have her on the program, and she's had a remarkable career in the world of the paranormal and researching this subject, and hopefully we can dig into that as well. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, it's been a long time coming, but I'm psyched to have you on the program. Welcome to BOA Audio.
0: It's really nice to be with you, Tim. I'm very excited about this.
3: Now, we usually sort of start out with the bio, the background, and I especially want to get into that with you because – When I talk to a lot of guests of your stature, of your high level of output and just prolific research, very often it's sort of like, you know, we're talking about what the latest thing is that they've been investigating. And, of course, you and Phil and Brogno are working on this book about the jinn. But first, you know, let's get into your bio, your background. How did you get involved in this field? I know you've been in it full time since 1982, which is astounding to me. And I want to know, you know, what sort of spawned your interest in all this, and what made you sort of decide to to make this a career instead of just a hobby, as so many other people do, you know?
0: Well, some of it was deliberate, and some of it was not. But like a lot of people in the paranormal, I had childhood experiences, Um, you know, psychic experiences. I think almost every child does, because children are very open psychically, and for most people, these experiences fade away after time. But... For me, they ignited a deeper interest. There were other members of my family, my mother and my sister, who also had experiences and learning about them um, made me more curious about what was going on. And then plus, like a lot of people in the paranormal, I had a very early interest in uh, sci-fi, astronomy, the occult, horror, paranormal. I just couldn't get enough of it. Yeah. But, um, in my writing career, I thought I was going to go the fiction route. And uh, my ambition as an author was to take paranormal topics and themes and do action adventure, horror, paranormal mystery, you know, things like yeah. that.. Yeah. And um, uh, some editors uh, who knew that I was knowledgeable about the paranormal asked me to write some nonfiction books. And uh, one thing led to another, and here I am, forty five nonfiction books later. Um I, <laughs> I, I just uh, never went back to the fiction.
3: <laughs> exactly, yeah. I'm still just amazed that you've been doing this since 1982. It's just stunning to me, the longevity of your, of your career. What was it like when you were first starting out? Because it's like a whole different world now with the Internet, with the TV programs. I mean, I feel like, you know, back in the 80s, this thing was pretty marginalized, just the whole – Paranormal sphere, and now it's it's sort of like creeping into the mainstream, if not already a part of the mainstream.
0: The paranormal was indeed marginalized, and in fact, I could not sell parano- paranormal nonfiction books at first. I was told by major publishers, and I was starting to get published by you know big publishing houses uh, uh, fairly early in my career, but uh, I was told by them that the occult was uh, a fringe topic, and I needed to seek out smaller publishers that specialized in that. And there was a turning point around the mid to late 1980s where these topics suddenly became in vogue. Uh, I think it was part of the New Age flowering. Mm -hmm. Uh, Suddenly it was okay to talk about things like near-death experiences, reincarnation. Shirley MacLaine had a big impact on that with her autobiographical books about her personal spiritual explorations. And I think the timing was right. Uh, and so these topics started entering mainstream media as topics on uh, talk shows uh, in documentaries, and more important than anything, as themes in uh, our entertainment, our primetime entertainment, our daytime soap operas and things like that. And it was all of a sudden, publishing jumped on the bandwagon and couldn't get enough of it fast enough. So everything that had been rejected in the years prior to that was suddenly, how fast can you write it? (laughs) It was an amazing turnaround. And I think that's one of the things that really propelled me along the nonfiction path was there was a hunger in publishing for uh, books, nonfiction books on paranormal topics. And I had the interest and the expertise and a lot of years of study behind me so I, I was able to fit into that fairly quickly and very well.
3: Yeah, it sounds like you were like, you know, right place, right time, and, and you had the expertise in the background to really start to take advantage of that, of that turning of events, I guess you could say.
0: Absolutely, Tim. And, you know, it's a much different scene now. Publishing has become much more democratized. Uh, back then, if you wanted to get a book out in a respectable way, you really had to deal with with uh, the publishing industry. And now, thanks to print-on-demand, e-books, um, you know, the the ease of publishing something yourself and the internet uh, has made it possible for more people to get their messages out. And there's a good side and a bad side to that because. Sometimes there's nobody screening books uh, for their content or even the way they're written. But the good thing is that uh, people who have important things to say about um, narrower topics in the paranormal have a way to get that message out. And I think that's very, very important because not every topic in the paranormal is going to be Dinner conversation in the average household.
3: Yeah, that's for sure, absolutely. Now I know you you have a forthcoming book about the gin that you've co-written with uh, Phil and Brogno, and I'm very interested in that because it seems like there's this like gin renaissance, if you will, all of a sudden in the last few years. Like like it's just everywhere I turn, I seem to be hearing about the gin. What do you make of that whole thing, and and what made you sort of decide to to pursue the gin?
0: It's, uh, here again, it's another topic whose time has come, and part of it, I think, uh, has to do with this uh, intense interest in the paranormal. The paranormal community itself has greatly expanded in the last decade or so, and uh, the gin represent kind of a fresh topic. We really don't talk about them much, know too much about them in Western culture except the genie in the bottle, uh, part of our entertainment, but yet they have a very long, uh, very Uh, deep uh, and well-respected heritage from the Middle East. And uh, Phil and I discovered several years ago, uh, we started collaborating on some research. Mm -hmm. And we just discovered in the course of our conversations, wide-ranging conversations on a lot of topics, that both of us had an interest in the djinn. And uh, mine had come through my study of angels and demons, And uh, Phil had had some personal experiences on a trip to the Middle East where he got acquainted very dramatically with the lore on gin. And uh, we both discovered that um, in addition to our mutual interests, we both had kind of the same feeling about the gin that there was something more to them that most people didn't know and that they really played uh, a very strong but hidden role in a lot of our paranormal experiences. They're players. They're definitely players. Yeah. And they're very overlooked um, just because our culture isn't oriented to the djinn. So that's what brought the jinn book about and uh, here again it's uh, timing. You know, We seem to have uh, hit very good timing with it that uh, interest in them is on the rise. So um, we think that our book will be very well received by people in the paranormal, and a general interest audience as well. Something new, something uh, to think about, uh, a new uh, factor to put into that paranormal equation in terms of what's really going on here.
3: Absolutely, yeah. It seems like that might even be sort of the subliminal route, if you will, maybe, for the re-emergence of the djinn or this renaissance of interest in it, because, you know, as you said, the community's expanded so much. It seems like there's so many people looking for answers that, you know, new elements are starting to come in and creep into this whole thing, sort of like the trickster part of it, how that's sort of becoming bigger and bigger lately, and shadow people and stuff. It's like, more, more elements, more spices are being thrown into this bouillabaisse base of the paranormal, and, and the gin is definitely a big one, I think.
0: It is, and, uh, of course, shadow people have been another topic that I've researched uh, since about late 2004, uh, and I do think that there's a gin factor there, too. The shadow people are very pervasive. Uh, I discovered that it was probably one of the most common yet least talked about experiences people did not realize that there's an actual pattern or core experience that that people have. Um, And one thing behind the gin research is, and this is what what got me going on them, was that I had all these paranormal cases, because I do a lot of investigations, that defied explanations in terms of, well, is it a ghost, a residual imprint, an active intelligence, a poltergeist? Is it a demon? You know, those sorts of things. And nothing seemed to quite fit very well. And I discovered in conversations with uh, John Zappas, who's a demonologist who's a very good friend of mine, we've worked together on many cases, that uh, in the history of his investigations, he had the same thing, that he would be called into what people thought were negative haunting situations caused by demons, and yet it just didn't seem to fit. But when you look at it from a djinn perspective, suddenly things make a lot of sense. So this broadened our research in terms of, like, how big a playing field are we talking about here that these entities could be involved in? And we think it's very pervasive.
3: Now, obviously, the jinn they come from, you know, the Middle East traditions. Do they have, you know, a Western counterpart? I mean, are we talking about these entities as leprechauns, that kind of elemental Thing, or or do we even have a word for them here in, you know, the United States?
0: They most often get translated as demons, and uh, in fact, it's probably one of the best known sources of information about them that comes from the Testament of Solomon, which is about the legendary King Solomon's enslavement of the jinn to build the Temple of Jerusalem and even the city of Jerusalem, and in many translations of that work, the the term jinn gets gets translated into demon. Uh, When jinn, it means the hidden ones, uh, and they are quite hidden. Uh, When Arabian folktales were translated for European markets, the French market and the English-speaking market, the word jinn got translated into genie. And uh, it may be because of some association with energy of place, the Latin term genius. For the, the spirit who resides in a place, hmm. and uh, the jinn are many of them are quite territorial, and they are known to inhabit certain locales. So there's a little bit about of that, but by and large, um, other than appearing in a few movies, and you know Aladdin and his magical lamp, and I Dream of Genie, and things like that, the jinn have really pat- passed us by, or rather we've passed them by. They just never really got anchored uh, into our our uh, supernatural lore, and I think that's because we've been very fixated on demons as the bad guys. And our definition of demons is extremely narrow relative to the demonic uh, universe, so to speak. Uh, we think of demons as satanic entities that are uh, under the uh, control of of Satan or the devil, and that their sole purpose is to uh, get us to subvert our souls so that we are condemned. But that's really only a small fraction of the demonic universe. There are many other kinds of demons that uh, don't seem to be very interested in the state of our souls, Um, demons who are even conjured up for benign purposes, and uh, some who are just plain tricksters, more like we would um, expect out of fairies, for example. Yeah. So So, uh, Phil and I uh, are trying to provide some information to uh, broaden the perspective, especially of people working in the paranormal, and this includes ufologists as well as the proverbial ghost hunters and the paranormal investigators and the demonologists, that uh, there is a player out there who's been around for a very long time uh, who could be participating in a lot of our experiences.
3: Yeah, I've heard speculation that the gin may be affiliated somehow with the whole abduction phenomenon.
0: Well, we, we do think that there's a connection, and uh, what we've done in the vengeful djinn is we've examined djinn uh, in relation to other kinds of entities that, that we have common experiences with, ETs, shadow people, Uh, ghosts and poltergeists, demons, uh, angels, and even mysterious creatures. The Jinn are shapeshifters, and uh, we believe that they can uh, shapeshift themselves into other kinds of entities in order to have certain kinds of experiences. Like um, some entities, some of them just want to have physical experiences. They want to have a vicarious thrill through us. Yeah. And uh, some of them are tricksters. They like playing jokes, uh, like fairies. And some of them get rather malicious at it. And then some of them really are hostile, uh, which would be more along the lines of the malevolent demon sort of thing. So there are a lot of agendas going on there. They they just aren't uh, single-minded. Um, now we're not saying that these other entities don't exist, but we uh, our case is that the jinn are behind some of our experiences that we think might be these other things, uh, and that there's more going on sort of behind the scenes that we might not realize. And some of it's really not in our best interest.
3: Their actions, I guess you could say, their agendas, if you will.
0: Well, yes. For example, in folklore, um, the the jinn got pushed out. Uh, they got pushed out of paradise or the space that we're in now because of us. Uh, and there's a, a faction of them that, uh, thinks that they ought to be able to reclaim their homeland. And so their agenda is to work actively against us, uh, to, in order to do that. They're, uh, according to lore, uh, jinn can have different religions. And, uh, some of them, uh, do behave in a satanic-like faction, uh, fashion. They um, want to tempt human beings. Um, According to lore, when God created human beings, the angels were in existence and the jinn were in existence. And uh, God ordered the angels to bow down before human beings. And the angels, uh, having no free will of their own, uh, did so immediately. And uh, Iblis, who was the leader of the jinn, who had access to heaven evidently, refused to do so because he considered human beings to be inferior. Uh, and as a result, Iblis and his kind, the jinn, were cast out, uh, sent away. And uh, Iblis went to God and said, well, if you give us a chance here, we'll show you just how weak humani- humanity is. And uh, that would be the more demonic side of them, uh, like demons tempt human beings. Yeah. Um, So there seems to be that agenda going on uh, in jinn and human interactions over time. This, hey, you know, this was our place and uh, we should be here, not you. um, And we're going to get it back. But the world that we inhabit now, being this, this physical realm, Uh, They have a hard time being in that, except through some sort of connection with with us, because their origins are plasma, smokeless fire, and uh, they can shapeshift into a variety of guises, but uh, our conjecture is that they don't have the ability to remain, for example, in a physical form for very long periods. So they, they need to have some sort of interaction with human beings in order to have continuity in this dimension
3: very strange very strange stuff well when you mix them in with the whole thing it sort of adds up a little bit to just how confusing the paranormal is because it does seem like if if there's other entities or elements masquerading as parts of the paranormal that would explain why a lot oftentimes there seems to be no consistency with a, a variety of different paranormal phenomena
0: it, it does get very, very murky, and the extent of masquerading might be quite substantial. And it's it's very difficult territory to even go into because I, I've never liked the attitude that, well, we have to dismiss everything in the paranormal because it's a masquerade, which is, of course, what the fundamentalists say. Yeah. Every, everything's a deceit and a masquerade, so you can't trust anything. But it does seem that um, there's much more going on than what we uh, we accept at surface level. Uh, and who exactly is doing what gets to be very problematic. Uh, I do think that there are a variety of purposes and agendas going on that um, we're unwitting participants in and possibly to our detriment.
3: And and you raise an interesting point there, in a sense, uh, which I I really have a lot of respect for you and your writing and your career because you're really multidisciplined. I mean, you've looked at just about every paranormal phenomenon under the sun. It it seems. What do you? I guess what do you make of how the mood, or I guess you could say the theme or the feeling of the fields of paranormal, seem to be getting better in the sense that there is sort of a turn towards more multidisciplined looking at. Just the paranormal in general, but at the same time, there's also a lot of specialization too. Where you know, UFO guy isn't going to look into Bigfoot or ghosts or that kind of thing. What what do you make of how things are sort of changing to be a little bit more multidiscipline?
0: It's definitely improved, but I think that there's still a long ways to go. Uh, I still see big disconnects between the paranormal and ufology, between cryptozoology and the paranormal. Uh, there does need to be more um, dialogue, more study of other things. This is something that I've advocated for years, especially in the paranormal community, that uh, uh, we need to be as broad-based and well-versed as possible in what's going on in these other fields. Uh, we're not just dealing with um, a pie slice here. We've got to look at, at the bigger picture. And I think that... Um, You know, people on on all sides of all these fences are kind of guilty uh, for neglect uh, because we find these attitudes, uh, disdainful attitudes on on both sides that, oh, yeah, we don't get involved in that sort of thing. Uh, And yet we're missing a lot by not um, taking the time to see what's going on in somebody else's field. When I started researching shadow people, I discovered, uh, and this was kind of by accident, because I was collecting a lot of anecdotal accounts, and uh, I was looking at this in terms of uh, not a demonic entity, but some sort of unknown malevolent entity, Mm -hmm. Uh, and I started getting these volunteered uh, ET encounter and abduction uh, comments, and oh, by the way, you know, sort of thing. Well, I went back to my database of um, experiencers and started asking more pointed questions about their ET experiences, and I discovered that quite a few of them were both shadow people experiencers and ET experiencers. Hmm. So I started exploring that connection. Well, my next line of inquiry then was to go to people who were specializing in uh, abduction research and ask them what they had come across. And I found to my astonishment that, almost without exception, this was totally ignored. Uh, even though these entities, these shadow people entities, were reported in the abduction literature, they were not taken seriously, discounted, it was something else sort of a byproduct of the whole ET experience, and and, um, I won't name names, (laughs) but uh, there were a couple of big names who just dismissed me out of hand as, you know, nothing here, Uh, and I think that's missing, you know, we're missing something there. There is a very big shadow people ET connection, and not just in abduction, but uh, all kinds of ET contact experiences. So this raises questions in terms of what's going on with individuals who are having a variety of contact experiences and and maybe the the type of contact uh, changes. Uh, We could be dealing with the same kinds of entities approaching people in different ways. There could be some sort of cooperation or collusion going on. It may have something to do with our cultural uh, perceptions and and even the way our individual consciousness um, interprets something. But clearly there's something going on here that bears further investigation. But I could not raise any serious interest in shadow people in the uh, UFO community, with the exception of a few people. Uh, And... This is the kind of thing that I think we all need to get past.
3: Yeah. It's unfortunate because you wonder how much good information and good cross-connections between these different fields has been thrown out over the years by researchers who, you know, they don't, they're do not they afraid to get into it. They're afraid to mix things up. They're afraid to be laughed at, ironically, because, you know, we're in a field that is, is perennially laughed at. So it's unfortunate, and you wonder how much good information we've lost until, you know, this sort of change that's been going on over the last few years.
0: Well, I, I think there's always a tendency to um, to want to have a, a well-defined and I would say even say neat explanation for something. And, uh, you know, hopefully we've resisted temptations to make data fit uh, you know, what we want, uh, rather than allowing the data to define, you know, what some, what something is. Um, and it may also be a factor of just not asking uh, the right questions or questions that deal with a broad enough perspective. I did find, for example, in my shadow people research that uh, I reached some conclusions about what I thought shadow people were, and yet when my research expanded, I had to abandon those conclusions and um, keep looking. Huh. Uh, and um, my feeling right now is that shadow people are most likely jinn. Um, prior to a, a year or so ago, I considered them to be an unknown, malevolent, uh, ultra-terrestrial that uh, had a purpose for monitoring people but they do seem to fit in with uh, well with a, uh, a scope of activities that the jinn engage in uh, in um, I would say molesting monitoring and interfering with with human beings and um, the shadow people guys is very effective for, uh, keeping us from asking questions because people are terrified out of their wits by these, these dark things that, um, usually show up in bedrooms. But I found that shadow people are far more active than that. That, um, they're not just bedroom visitors. They, um, they can be around in the daytime. Uh, they seem to have a variety of agendas going. Uh, in terms of, of what they're up to and what they're interested in.
3: Yeah. now just to just to sort of hone in on the gin a little bit more, are they just are they generally across the board pretty much malevolent entities, or are there some that are just sort of blase and they don't care they're doing their own thing sort of?
0: There, uh, we believe that there are quite a few jinn who uh, really don't want to interact much with people. They're uh, of a benign nature. They don't bear us any ill will. Um, They might perhaps think that we're uh, too inferior to be trifled with, but uh, they won't disturb us unless we disturb them. And I think that the bulk of our experiences with gin come from two different types. One is the uh, trickster type and the other is the hostile type. And the trickster type fits uh, fairy lore very, very closely. In fact, of all the entities that we analyze, uh, juxtaposed to gin, The fairies had the best fit. Uh, and of course fairies have a very long tradition in folklore of being playful trickster and malicious trickster and not being very kindly disposed to human beings. Also uh, they're a hidden race and in Celtic lore especially they were pushed out by human beings.
3: Interesting. Okay. I'm going to kind of go off-topic here a little bit and sort of just ask you, you know, you've been, as we've established you, you've been in this field like full-time since 82, so that's almost 30 years. I've always sort of puzzled, I guess you could say, by the notion that these phenomena, anything really in the paranormal field from UFOs to Bigfoot to ghosts to, you know, you name it, you know, we've been looking at this stuff at least since, you know, the 1950s, let's say, so at least 60 years. How come you think we still haven't been able to unravel any paranormal mystery?
0: That's probably the $60 million question, (laughs) you know, and, and I think a lot of us feel that every time we get close, once again, just out of our grasp. But I do think that we've made a lot of headway. Clearly, human beings have been having core experiences throughout history and, um, I've always looked at mythology, folklore, historical accounts, uh, whatever I'm researching, and that does seem to be the case. I think, however, we, have, we still have a limited understanding of uh, the multiverse and also how our consciousness behaves to interact with these parallel dimensions, uh, with the unseen, and it's a real wild card. Uh and I think that this is one of the things that hinders any kind of organized scientific inquiry into a lot of these things. Uh whether or not uh, we will will ever be able to have uh, the kind of science that can grapple with it, I'm I'm not certain. But human consciousness um, is different in in all of us in terms of how we perceive a lot of things. There Uh, As I mentioned, there are these these core experiences that uh, large numbers of humanity uh, have shared over time. Our labels for these experiences, our interpretations change, but the core elements of them seem to be pretty consistent. Um, But no two people have the same experience, and uh, we don't seem to be able to have experiences on demand. And uh, any paranormal investigator will tell you, uh, by going back to the same haunted location time and time again, you're never going to have the same experience twice. Um, you might have similar experiences, but never exactly the same ones. So we're dealing with this wild card factor, which, uh, and this is something that Phil and I have looked into, and I know other researchers have too, we've looked at uh, geological factors like the Um, geophysical traits of a landscape, the content of the soil. We've looked at weather conditions, lunar phases, seasons, uh, times of the day and night. And we can pinpoint certain things that um, seem to be consistent with uh, some reasonable predictability. But the wild card is the individual person involved. And uh, sometimes it's, it's a mix of people. So I think that this is um, it's an obstacle that we run up against in the paranormal that makes it very difficult for us to paint definitive pictures and reliable pictures and also, I think, gain a true understanding of what's out there. But I'm like John Keel, uh, and he was such a trailblazer. In fact, we, uh, Phil and I both knew John very well. And we dedicated the Vengeful Jinn to him. And, you know, he's the one who coined the term the ultra-terrestrial, that we're really dealing with entities that are kind of in our immediate sphere, but just in another dimension. Yeah. Of course, we have uh, the concepts of that, which have developed in physics. Uh, And both of us think that this is very much at play, that we are dealing with parallel dimensions very close to ours. So how much weight, or I should say how much light science can shed on our paranormal experiences, from that perspective, remains to be seen. We find, you know, such a, a disdainful attitude among many scientists concerning the paranormal. I've, I've had scientists tell me, you know, everything's in my head, it's all my imagination, there's no such thing as the paranormal, uh, it, it's amazing.
3: And the unfortunate part, too, is uh, I've talked about this with ufologists before on the program, is if this mysterious world of the paranormal was ever unlocked, then science would rush in and push push all of us out. And, you know, we, we wouldn't have science degrees, so we wouldn't be qualified to speak on this anymore almost. It seems like we're in a can't-win situation in a way, because if, if this thing ever gets unlocked, you know, we're kind of, you know, we can say, yeah, I told you so for a little while, but that's about it. Who's going to be listening anyway?
0: Exactly. And that's that's exactly what will happen is that uh, suddenly the scientists will be there and uh, it'll be a different story. And Phil has found that, um, and, and he's got an extremely good science background. Uh, and uh, he's uh, certainly found that in some of the things that he's built into that the scientists uh, give you the brush off until they see a reason to to be involved, and then suddenly, um, you know, it's their game, not yours.
3: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's it's troubling, really. It uh, makes you wonder how it's all going to shake out. Now, what do you make of the of this sort of like ghost hunting explosion that's happened in recent years? Obviously, you've been looking at this phenomenon for you know, decades before the explosion happened. So I guess what do you make of all these sort of weekend warriors and (laughs) folks with gadgets and stuff running around in graveyards and and stuff like that that's happened in the last few years?
0: Uh, It's true. I was doing paranormal investigation ghost hunting way before it was cool. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Here again we've got a double-edged sword going. And the popularity of the television shows, um, these so-called reality shows, uh, which really don't offer any reality whatsoever, they're all entertainment, uh, they've brought a lot of people into the field, and that's good uh, to get more people involved in inquiry, but the downside is, and from my perspective, the downside is outweighing the good side uh, at the moment, mm-hmm. because the reality shows uh, have so skewed perceptions of what the paranormal is and what expectations to have when engaging and researching it. These shows are all entertainment. Uh, they're not reality-based whatsoever. You can't walk into a haunted location and have things happen on demand. Things do not happen within two minutes of setting up your equipment. They do not happen all night long. So it's... Uh, and, and the evidence for these shows is... I'm not saying they don't get evidence, but more likely it's been fabricated, embellished, uh, and bumped up for the sake of entertainment. And if these shows called themselves entertainment, I wouldn't have any problem with them. But they call themselves reality, and so people think that that's what the paranormal really is. Uh, I've been dismayed to lead um, ghost investigations for uh, at, at you know large public events. Where people get very upset and even angry uh, if phenomena doesn't happen immediately for them, and dramatic phenomena, they want to see um, things swaying and flying across the room, and lights going on and off, and you know they they go into places and start screaming at at um, ghosts to do something, uh, and so it's it's had. Um, quite a negative effect, I think, on the field, and um, I, I think, um, frankly, television makes people in the paranormal look like a bunch of buffoons, you know, that, uh, you know, we do silly things in order to investigate the paranormal. I am glad to see, however, that equipment has um, become much more available to people. Uh, I mean, 20, 30 years ago, nobody had anything much beyond maybe a video camera and a a regular camera and some sort of audio recorder. Yeah. Uh, We didn't have a lot of fancy gear at our disposal. So that's been good, that we can be more sophisticated in our approach. But TV has painted an inaccurate, unfair, and unrealistic picture of what paranormal investigation is all about.
3: Yeah, yeah, and I keep waiting for this the bubble to burst on ghost hunting, but it seems like it just keeps getting the bubble keeps expanding. You know, like every time it seems like there's a new ghost show, you know, cropping up every few months. When you think that, you know, is this it, it's it's clearly a fad I and mean, you're wondering when it's going to end, but it it just keeps getting bigger.
0: It does, and uh, you know we've got now uh, shows on on demon hunting uh, coming out this year. Uh, that's going to be another bad thing for the paranormal to emphasize. You know, give too much emphasis to that. Um, every negative haunting is not a demon. So here again, the the public perception gets uh, skewed. And we also have on, on some of these newer shows people who have no background whatsoever in the paranormal who are being set up as experts in the paranormal, which puzzles me no end. But, uh, you know, there you have it.
3: Well, everybody wants to be on TV, and most of the time it seems like these programs, they don't want to pay the real experts. So if somebody will show up and be, be on for free, then they're tagged as an expert. That's the way it seems to be as far as people I've talked to and stuff like that.
0: Well, that, that is happening. There are, unfortunately, many people who um, just want to be on TV, and they'll uh, they'll do and say anything uh, in, in order to do that. And I think those seem to be the candidates for these shows, because a lot of the people who have been doing serious research are, are not going to go uh, on some of these shows and... Uh, participate in, in some of these ridiculous things. And they're not, you know, I'm not uh, condemning them all by any means. Yeah. But uh, we are dealing with entertainment here, and and um, a real investigation uh, would not make good entertainment. People would be very bored with that in a hurry.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, a lot of sitting around, a lot of waiting to see if something's going to happen, and more often than not, nothing happening. So.
0: I just wish that, you know, they'd call these shows uh, entertainment and what might happen on on a ghost hunt, you know, rather than what really happened. Um, and I've seen what they've done with some of the evidence. I've been asked to provide evidence for some of these shows. Apparently the ghost hunters aren't, you know, capable of getting their own evidence or enough evidence. Uh, and what they do with the evidence that's given them in terms of photographs and video and what winds up on the screen or the viewing audience are two different things.
3: Yeah, yeah. it's, And you wonder, at least I wonder, as far as the ghost hunting goes, I feel like it's almost going to approach the UFO levels, because I'm jaded now to reports of lights in the sky, because we just have so many of them. And I feel like the ghost thing is getting to the point now where it's like, we probably have thousands of EVPs, we probably have thousands of you know orb photos and all this other stuff it's like we're i don't know what we're i don't know what we're getting at i guess with this stuff do you know what i mean like i feel like we need to find we need to do more investigation of the source what's the cause of this than what is the effect which is the evps and the orbs and stuff like that
0: the ghost hunting that we're dealing with now i call it hamster wheel ghost hunting <laughs> it goes round and round and round and it never leads to anything it falls into the hey dude we got a ghost here uh, and that's a, an entertainment factor that the audience really seems to be stuck in uh, because we never, we never seem to get past that. It's just, and also, um, these shows tend to be progressively uh, emphasizing more of a thrill. It's not just enough to go in and investigate and see if you have any evidence of ghosts. You've got to be scared. You've got to be terrified. You've got to be threatened. You've got to be pushed. Uh, That's been a a rather dismaying trend, too. And uh, I I just simply don't know where it's all going to uh, lead, but it's not doing the paranormal community any favors.
3: Right, right. And do you think there's like a – you're talking about this demon show that's coming up, and I know that you've looked at the whole Ouija board phenomenon and everything. Do you think there's also like this dangerous element here to it that was sort of lighting a fire under some people to – dabble in things that they really should not be messing with, such as Ouija boards and trying to entice demons and (laughs) malevolent entities and stuff.
0: There is that factor that the shows can encourage people uh, to do some things that wind up being very problematic, if not downright dangerous for them. Uh, I think it's important to approach the paranormal with a great deal of respect, and uh, it's it's not an entertainment thing uh, it's prudent to know something about what you're dealing with before you try uh, to engage yourself in it in any way and uh, all of us who have been in the field any length of time see people with problems um, continually that you know they they want to conjure spirits or uh, they uh, go into a, a location with this attitude uh, problem and and something follows them home and then they don't know how to deal with that. Uh, There are a lot of different kinds of entities out there in these parallel dimensions, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And people can have very unsettling experiences. And um, if you're not psychologically prepared to deal with the paranormal, they can be psychologically unbalancing as well, and I've certainly seen that.
3: It's troubling. Now, do you think the bubble will eventually burst on this ghost hunting thing? I figure it, I must have to at some point. And, and do you think that maybe some other element of the paranormal will will sort of take off? I know, you know, we we had sort of like the 9-11 thing as the dominant force in the field of the paranormal for the first half of the last decade, and then... The ghost thing sort of came along after that. Maybe we're heading into a UFO-centric era next. I mean, do you see anything on the horizon maybe that might be the next big thing?
0: I think we're going to see a resurgence of interest in uh, cryptozoology, the mysterious creatures. I'm hoping that we will have uh, some sort of balance. I don't think reality television is going to go away. It's too much a part of our entertainment culture. Yeah. Uh, but I would like to see a return of information-based shows, docudramas and documentaries that um, portray some of the excitement of researching the paranormal um, at the same time while delivering solid information. And I really think that there are ways to do that, especially with uh, the fabulous technology that we have available today uh, that will at least give people, um, a more balanced perspective, information as well as entertainment. So uh, I don't expect these sorts of things to go away. Uh, we may see a drop in the number of shows at, at some point, uh, and hopefully we'll we'll see some of the other, you know, come back up. There have been some uh, excellent documentaries and, and docudramas done over the years, and uh, I think that 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 deserves more attention. Uh, and also, I think that there are ways to mix in more science with this, too, if we uh, bring in people who have the backgrounds who can talk about uh, parallel dimensions and uh, who are willing to consider uh, the paranormal aspects of, um, of quantum mechanics.
3: Yeah, yeah, like a, like a Michio Kaku of some kind.
0: Exactly, and Phil and Brogno has... Uh, an excellent background for that. This is one of the things that that, uh, I've really appreciated in working with him is that uh, he's got a a very solid knowledge base on both sides of the fence. And uh, and he's willing to explore the paranormal, but he's also got the science background and he's constantly looking for the science to explain what we're dealing with in the paranormal.
3: Now you bring up cryptozoology. What do you make of of that? It seems like it's, cryptozoology seems like the one paranormal field that's almost on the cusp of mainstream acceptance in a way. And I think a, a, a really solid discovery for cryptozoology would probably push it into mainstream in the sense that, you know, a lot of these other creatures would be given a second look. Now, what do you think as far as I mean, obviously the big daddy is the Bigfoot? Do you think that that's a flesh and blood creature or some kind of interdimensional being of some kind or both or, or whatever? What's your what's your take on that?
0: I've always thought that Bigfoot, as well as entities like the Jersey Devil, Mothman, and and things like that, uh, I think that they are interdimensional. Uh, And I know that most uh, researchers feel the opposite, that they they feel that they're looking for a a flesh and blood entity. Uh, That kind of puzzles me why uh, there aren't more of them who are at least willing to consider the paranormal aspect. Uh, But... um, I think that uh, the odds of finding a corpse or catching an actual creature are probably very low. But um, we certainly have a lot of sightings of these things. Yeah. And I think that that's, um, you know, this is an area that I think is, uh, I'm seeing an upswing in interest. I've been out on some Bigfoot expeditions uh, myself. Uh, there are some very haunted Um, Bigfoot corridors um, not too far from me. I live in Connecticut. Oh, wow. Pennsylvania is um, a very active state. (laughs) Oh,
3: yeah, for sure.
0: There are even sightings of Bigfoot in in, uh, Rhode Island. And here again, there are patterns that um, are consistent. They fall into place with other things that we're looking at. And uh, this is what Phil and I are addressing in our next book on interdimensional portals. That there are uh, places that have certain uh, signatures to them where we can, with some reasonable latitude, uh, predict what kinds of phenomena are going to, uh, to happen there. What we'd like to do is can, can we even predict who's likely to have those experiences and when. But as I mentioned earlier, we're dealing with such a wild card in human consciousness um, I don't know how well we'll be able to do that. But we can predict certain other factors. We found, for example, that uh, lunar phases uh, seem to have a bearing. The full moon is not necessarily the time for maximum paranormal activity. This is something that even huh. ghost hunters have have found over time. Um, there's a window around the full moon and the new moon where activity is likely to peak. It's about a day before and a day or two after. Huh. And um, new moon can be as active as the full moon. Um, times of the day, uh, we've been, Phil and I have been running a lot of uh, exper- experiments at sites which are highly active, and we think that actually daytime uh, is more of a peak than nighttime. Oh, wow. Now, nighttime has certain advantages because things are quieter at night, and uh, I think people can attune themselves more easily to, to paranormal things. But we think that the activity in Earth's magnetosphere has a lot to do with this in terms of these small portals that open up. And when the magnetosphere is more active, being warmed by the sun, uh, we're uh, just as likely, if not more likely, to have paranormal experiences than at night. But most people aren't l- out looking for them in the daytime.
3: Yeah, very interesting. See, why I had heard about this whole idea of, like, the witching hour. I'm sure you've probably heard of this whole thing, between, like, 3 and 4 a.m. or something like that. Have you ever uh, looked into that, or is that just sort of like an old wives' tale? Uh,
0: I have looked into it, and I do believe that there is some validity to it. And um, my personal explanation is that for most people, that particular time of night is probably, we're probably at some sort of stage of sleep. Where our consciousness is more, I would say, unfettered, mm-hmm. uh, we may be more accessible to the paranormal realm, that is, things might be able to reach us more easily, or we may uh, be having some sort of freedom of consciousness that enables us to, uh, to see what's already there. Uh, I think that these entities, these phenomena, are around us all the time, and it's a Sometimes it's a matter of us being able to perceive them. Uh, So there is something about that hour, and I have found that to be the case myself. This is when a lot of visitations happen. Uh, It's reported in the ET literature. Uh, It's reported in the shadow people literature, Uh, ghosts and hauntings, figures who come and stand by the bed. And it may have something to do with the state of our consciousness in that phase of sleep. Uh, I do think that our consciousness travels when we sleep. Interesting. These um, boundaries may be more permeable for us.
3: I've looked over all your stuff, and you don't seem to be someone who, you know, delves into the conspiracy element of all of this. So I'm wondering just, you know, why the paranormal's been so marginalized. I know a lot of people, especially with the UFO phenomenon, ascribe that to some sort of government conspiracy to, you know, purposely marginalize the UFO phenomenon. But it seems like all elements of the paranormal are marginalized. So, I mean, wh- why do you think it is so pushed to the fringe?
0: Well, it, uh, the paranormal is um, its unpredictable. It does not seem to be a part of our ordinary reality. You know, we, we have a reality that's ordered by certain rules. Uh, the sun comes up and sets every day. We have things that feel solid to us. If we throw something at a certain speed, it goes a certain distance, you know, those sorts of things. Uh, we have a structure and an order to our reality, and the paranormal impinges on that. It comes winging in with phenomena and experiences that upset the natural order. And I think throughout history, this has been very easy for human beings to discount as an aberration it's your imagination it's a faulty mental state aristotle's influence on reality is something that was defined by the five senses has had a huge impact on how we see our uh, reality and how our world is structured all of these things in the paranormal come from beyond the five senses yeah and uh, I, I do think that human beings, uh if we manage to last long enough on this planet uh <laughs> will uh will evolve in the direction of the proverbial sixth sense, that, that more of us will uh will have this faculty for uh seeing beyond our five sense reality. Will we ever be able to have a consensual extraordinary reality? That's a tough one because, uh, here again, uh, we have so many subjective points of view when it comes to experiencing these things. Where are the rules? And we haven't found any new set of rules yet for dealing with the paranormal.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's no like law of physics to tie this whole thing together yet, so it's hard to really figure it all out. Well, obviously, you've covered a whole bunch of different stuff. Is there one area in particular that you find you know, particularly most compelling, I guess you would say? Obviously, you, you know, you've, you've covered all the different genres. So is there one that you seem to keep coming back to that, that you find you know, most perplexing?
0: There are two areas that uh, I'm concentrating on now and have, have been the products of evolution in my work. Mm-hmm. And uh, one I term just interdimensional entity contact. And that covers everything that I've done in the past. The angels, the demons, the fairies, shadow people, mysterious creatures, ETs. Um, you know, the big topic, so to speak, yeah. of our interactions with the unseen. That they all fall under the umbrella of interdimensional entity contact. And I, I think that there are some, um, some common elements to all of them. Uh, that link all of these things together, and there are other researchers who feel the same way, too, and so that's a very important focus of of my research right now, the parallel dimension aspect. Yes. The other is spirit communication. Uh, Several years ago, I became very interested in real-time EVP, and of course, I'd been experimenting with EVP since the 1980s when... I was doing a lot of my research in the paranormal, and I read about white noise and EVP and uh, putting a, a recorder out to, to get answers to questions, but we have a variety of, of technologies now for real-time communications, and, and it's uh, one of the more controversial, I, I want to even say shakier uh, aspects of um, research in, in this area because it is so unpredictable, but it's so intriguing. And um, the the technology that I have favored for several years is radio sweep um, with devices that are go by various names like the mini box, the ghost box, the Frank's box. Yes. Yeah. And uh, they they're devices that sweep in various fashions. The usually the AM band of radio. You can sweep FM too. Uh, to create um, a noise matrix that you can capture real-time responses on. And uh, there's even a lot of controversy within the EVP and and uh, paranormal communities on how valid this uh, this method is. Uh, anyone who's ever listened to much EVP knows that often there's a variety of interpretations of what's actually said.
3: Interesting. See, because I thought that whole sort of thing had gone the way of, um, you know, had been dismissed. So there's this, this sort of like a renewed work here of, of trying to do this real-time communication?
0: There is. And um, actually, these devices have been around for a long time. And in fact, uh, I, I just finished a book with George Norrie on the topic of spirit communications, where we're focusing on the technology for communicating with the other side, with the dead, and even with entities who are in these parallel dimensions. And uh, if, you, if you look at the history of our telecommunications devices, um, as soon as something was invented and put out on the market, people have been getting mystery voices. We got them on the telegraph and Morse code. We got them on the phonograph, the telephone, the radio, and of course you know now in in the internet yeah they've been around a very long time they just haven't fallen into the devices have not fallen into the hands of uh, for example the paranormal community at large and um, there is quite a bit of controversy on them i don't think they're ever going to replace human mediums people do like to get messages through people uh from from the dead you know mediumship and channeling but Technology offers us the tantalizing idea of literally the telephone to the dead, that can we develop the technology where we could break open reliable video and audio communication with other dimensions? And I think that we have that capability. We're probably in very primitive stages right now, probably, you know, like Stone Age, but I think that we have the capability of developing this technology. I have gotten so many real-time uh, communications that I cannot explain naturally. Getting pointed answers, entire sentences to questions being addressed by name. Uh, Phil and I have speculated that we may be tuning into parallel versions of ourselves. Oh wow! Uh, doing doing the same sort of thing, and uh, it's propelled me along for some years. I think there is definitely something to it. And George and I do speculate in the book, uh, you know, what would happen if if we had, like, say, like there was a device like a cell phone that, um, or a webcam, a, a type of com- computer, where you could call up someone you knew who died and have a conversation with them. Uh, what would they tell us? What would they show us about the afterlife? And I think that um, uh, the truth about the afterlife is probably bears very little resemblance to what religion teaches us, and we would be in for one rough roller coaster of a ride. But I think it's important for us to keep going because that's the only way we're, we're ever going to break out of these limitations that we have with this five-sense reality. Have you shown this to anyone?
2: No. If copies got out, it would be ridiculed by the online community. Son of Son of Spock, the Dork Knight, I killed Kenny 6475.
1: Don't be afraid of
2: them. Two of them are me. You're listening to Banal of America Audio.
1: How many issues have you written?
2: Ooh, uh, just 335, including the controversial number 289, featuring the death of Marmaduke. Ooh.
3: Yeah, well, you raise an interesting sort of rhetorical question, I guess, because you've looked at this a lot more than I have, and you say that you think the afterlife is a lot different than what religion tells us. So what do you, you know, based on everything you've investigated, what do you think the afterlife is?
0: I think it's very fluid. Uh, I do think that first we go to a place that probably conforms to our expectations, personal, religious, spiritual uh, something that's probably very similar to what we've left behind as, as a way of transiting um, in various communications. And I've, I've researched mediumistic communications. There's been concerted collection of those for well over a century now from psychical research. And um, they are very consistent in terms of, of descriptions that first there is this kind of transition point and then we start adjusting to an afterlife where we can take on any form that we want, uh, i.e. Uh, most people will will look their best. They'll pick a period uh, in their life where they felt that they uh, looked and felt their best. Uh, we begin to understand the power of thought and thought to manifest reality. And we discover that we have the ability to Uh, to penetrate other realms. Uh, I think that uh, some people do elect to stay close to the earth plane. They have interests in the earth plane or family members. And um, they may make themselves available for these mediumistic communications. But at some point, uh, I think that we journey on and probably go into some other dimensions that are very inaccessible to us, maybe because we, we can't comprehend them. Uh, they're beyond the ability of our consciousness i do believe in reincarnation uh, i'm not certain exactly what of us reincarnates whether it's more of a, a buddhist perspective in terms of our attributes and our spiritual and, and um, enlightened uh, consciousness that, that goes on or whether personality goes on or both there may be multitudes of parallel dimensions that that our multidimensional self spins off into to have all, all sorts of experiences. And uh, I don't necessarily think that they're all on Earth. I think that there are other worlds and other planes that uh, the sum total of who we are has experiences. Uh, so I don't think that um, there's a, a finality to the afterlife. I The idea of a static heaven or hell is... Um, I, I disagree with that. I don't think that any supreme being sits in judgment of us. I think that there is some overarching consciousness that holds everything together, uh, which, which we would call God or unconditional love or uh, the all that is. Uh, but how, uh, how much that, uh, that cohesiveness plays in our individual paths I don't think we really know.
3: It raises an interesting conundrum in a way, too, because if we ever did unlock the afterlife and what happens after you die, it may have a deleterious effect on all of us who are still here in a way. Do you know what I mean? It's like uh, I think a lot of the underpinnings of society are partially because fear of dying and or the unknown of what happens after you die. So if it became known, you wonder how society would react.
0: Uh, I I think that uh, there's a potential for a lot of chaos. In fact, I think proof of the afterlife could be more destabilizing than the proverbial UFO on the White House lawn. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of us have become conditioned to the idea that at some point we're going to encounter alien life forms, Um, not to diminish the impact of that by any means, but um, the idea of, of what happens to us after we die. Now, there's something that could... Uh, it could undermine entire religions. People who feel that they've got to live a good life here in order to be rewarded in the afterlife—well, what if the afterlife isn't like that?
1: Exactly, These mystic yeah.
0: communications support the idea that uh, there is compensation; that the afterlife is compensatory. Then, if you have elevated yourself and you've, you've followed the, the righteous path, so to speak, that there is compensation for that in the afterlife, that you continue on. There don't seem to be very many perspectives of like the permanent hell, for example, and and the people who go to the lower regions uh, do have the ability for rehabilitation, uh, but they do have to to, uh, work themselves, you know, apply themselves to work themselves out of that. But our whole uh, concepts of morals and ethics and what we must do in this life a lot of it uh, is contingent upon what our fears are of the afterlife.
3: Exactly. So to unlock that could be tremendously upsetting. To <laughs> That would really upset the apple cart, I think, in a big way. But you it know, would one, be interesting to see it play out. Yep.
0: It could, Tim. Uh, and uh, one of the, the things that's been very interesting in, in uh, doing the research with George on this book is uh, the people who have felt that they had some sort of breakthrough evidence in the past of proof of the afterlife you know they've taken their evidence out they've had press conferences they've done demonstrations and uh naturally they're met with some criticism and ridicule that's to be expected but what all of them did not expect was apathy they had uh they all had all these researchers had visions of uh, ushering humanity into a new brotherhood of love and light uh, because the riddle of the afterlife would be solved. Yeah. And what they're met with is a collective yawn. And I don't think it's like um, nobody cares. I I think that this is another playing out of our fear that people say they want to know that there's survival after death and that, that they want to know that they carry on in some way, but they're afraid to know exactly how.
3: Interesting that, that it would be met with apathy, but I think uh, you also, I guess you have to couple that too with just the general marginalization of the paranormal where people don't believe people who are in the power. Like if it was a scientist who came out with the information, maybe it would be seen differently, I guess. I don't know.
0: That's true. And in fact, uh, science has been very opposed to a lot of spirit communications research, uh, even more so than, than organized religion. There have been, you know, some components of religion that have championed the idea of spirit communications. But I would like to add, with the expectation that the information in the afterlife is going to validate the religion. Uh, and we, we do, simply don't have that guarantee. Our religions are powerful. They, they are more powerful than governments. And going up against those beliefs is very serious business. So I think that we probably stand the most to gain and lose in the, in the area of spirit communication. Uh, in science, it's very hard now to pursue any serious research. Uh, we had, from about the late 1800s, we had the field of psychical research where People with academic and scientific background studied mediums, and then that evolved into parapsychology with laboratory work um, mainly oriented toward demonstrating psi, like ESP and telepathy, uh, and also PK, psychokinesis, mind over matter. But uh, in today's climate, it's very difficult for anyone with a science background to get any serious interest, support, or funding uh, in studies of mediumship and spirit communications. It's just quite dismissed as, as um, you know, fringe and unimportant.
3: And something that I was kind of angling around earlier when I was asking you the question, given what we know about what the government looked at as far as remote viewing and that kind of stuff, do you think... That there are answers out there, but they've been held back by people who figured them out inside the government or whatever, that kind of thing.
0: I can't help but think that. And I'm not much on on the conspiracy end of things. I I really haven't gotten involved in that. Uh, But I can't help but think that somebody or some institutions know more than they're telling. Uh, And this may be because of fears of, uh, you know, acculturation, you know, the, the... disintegrating uh, impact the, the chaotic impact that uh, some things could have on society as a whole Our reality is is set to structure and order and uh, we have religions governments and institutions that maintain that order and so if you inject information that upsets the order it's difficult to predict you know the fallout from that.
3: Yeah, like we said here about the, the whole life after death thing, if it was, you know, if the government figured out that what happens after you die and everything, they, you know, why would they want to tell anybody? They wouldn't pay any taxes. They wouldn't go to work anymore and all this other stuff. So it's like <laughs> it wouldn't make any sense to tell anybody. Now, as somebody who's been doing this for almost 30 years, let's say, you know, you're talking to somebody who just got into this, who's interested in the phenomenon, paranormal you know, sphere. What kind of advice would you give, I guess you could say, to newcomers to the field of the paranormal? What, what should they do to, you know, better educate themselves and, and, and to really sort of, um, you know, begin the path, if you will?
0: Two things. One is to cultivate and maintain a spiritual, a daily spiritual practice of meditation and or prayer, but especially meditation. And, uh, the reason for this is that it, expands consciousness. It sharpens the intuition and the psychic faculty. Uh, It connects you to something that's higher than you, uh, a sense of something that's higher than you and forces that are higher or beyond you, but it's grounding at the same time. And work in the paranormal. To be effective in the paranormal, you must be grounded. That's like the underpinning. Uh, I think that Work in the paranormal, whether you're in ufology, ghost hunting, Bigfoot hunting. Uh, If you go deep enough and and stay in it long enough, you will wind up on the path of the mystic, and that is the truth. You wind up contemplating and pursuing the same big spiritual questions that uh, have formed all of our mystical traditions. The paranormal will lead you straight there. Unless, of course, you get caught up in hamster wheel ghost hunting, and then you go nowhere. (laughs) And the, and the other is to be as broad-based as possible in your study. It's perfectly fine to have an area that you want to go into very intensely, but try to, um, to educate yourself in, in all of these things so that you have some context to put them in. There are so many people out there who have focused in such narrow areas that they have no context to compare their field to. And that's like having tunnel vision. I'm very thankful that because of my own curiosity, uh, I elected not to specialize in any one field, but to, um, to become involved in some way in all of it. And, of course, you can't be in everything all the time, but I think it's a good idea to have a working knowledge of as much as possible and uh, to get out and do some hands-on things, to go out on field trips, to uh, go to the conferences, uh, be in dialogue on the internet, uh, to be, uh, you know, constantly searching for um, new perspectives and, and information, and to be as open-minded as possible.
3: Absolutely, yeah. As I, I, we've been preaching on this program for a very long time, that you really got to be multidisciplined to to get a handle on this whole thing, because it's just too much overlapping of these things to, for them not to be related.
0: And otherwise, you know, how can you possibly um, evaluate what you've experienced or if you're investigating what someone else has reported experiencing if you haven't got uh, a broad base of knowledge to draw upon?
3: I I take it you're probably not a big 2012-er, but uh, where do you see things headed as we, you know, move further into this new decade?
0: You know, I, I think we're still going to be here in 2012, mm-hmm. and uh, I know that there are some scenarios out there that uh, are looking very unsettling, that uh, the sun itself is, is going to be determining uh, a lot of what happens on this planet with uh, solar flare activity and, and, uh, and things like that. It's inevitable that... The sun will die at some point and take the earth with it and probably most everything else in the, in the solar system. Uh, whether or not that happens far in the future or in the near future, I don't think we know. But I've, I'm not a doomsday person. Yeah. I've tended to not get too involved in doomsday scenarios because as soon as one doomsday is passed and we're still here, another one crops up and everybody gets reoriented toward that. And I also don't think it's a good idea to encourage the collective thought of the people on this planet toward a disaster because it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think that we don't have much of a clue of the impact of the manifestation power of our thought. If we did, we would think and act much differently. And when you get a global mindset going... Of people oriented toward destruction and disaster, it can't help but have a physical impact on the things that happen on this planet.
3: Exactly, yeah. So if everybody's expecting doomsday on 2012, it could become a self-fulfilling prophecy just because it's it manifests itself. The one area we haven't really gotten into, in a sense, is just the, the UFO phenomenon in general. Obviously, you're interested in the these interdimensional entities. Now, do you think that that can be ascribed to most of the UFO phenomenon, or do you think there is sort of like, you know, the classic UFO thing is still going on in the sense that it's aliens from another planet, straight up, you know, as the old school UFO guys say?
0: I think that we probably, we're probably experiencing both. Uh, the idea that entities from another world with sufficiently advanced technology to, you know, get around the distance question, uh, probably through wormholes, makes a lot of sense to me and uh, that we may indeed have been or are being visited by such entities. I think the bulk of our contact experiences that we um, explain and define as extraterrestrial are interdimensional, that they're beings from dimensions which are part of our universe uh, and just very close to us that we can't quite see around the bend in space,
3: so to speak. That seems to be the one theory, I guess you could say, that's becoming more and more in vogue over the years, because it just lends itself to reason that this thing seems too complex. It has to be something beyond just people from another planet, if you will.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Now, obviously, you've been in this for 30 years. Do you think, well, as far as the UFO phenomenon goes, you know, there's this element to ufology that is pushing and pushing and pushing for disclosure. Do you think that, thing, that sort of thing will ever happen, or do you think the government's as flummoxed by the UFO phenomenon as you and I are?
0: Part of me thinks that the government, so to speak, uh, the entity we call a government, (laughs) um, may not know as much as we think we know. Personally, I think it's very hard to sit on big secrets. And if enough people know the secret, sooner or later it comes out in some way. On the other hand, it's quite likely that there is a suppression of at least some information, but I, I do get a little weary every year of the buildup for the October surprise, um, and you know we're we're always just on the edge of of some big disclosure that never seems to materialize, which in and of itself is rather trickster-like. So I I think I believe a little of both that there's probably there are probably a lot of things that uh, the general public uh, are not being told. But at the same time, is the government sitting on, uh, you know, the granddaddy of of them all in terms of revelations? It seems to me pretty hard to keep that under wraps for so long.
3: Yeah, that would seem to be the case. You wonder what really is going on, and if we'll ever uh, find out. So it'll be interesting to see how things unfold as the years go by. So obviously you're working on the gin book. When can people expect that to be available uh, to get their hands on?
0: The gin book will be published in March. It's actually finished and in production now. Uh, We're uh, still wrapping up portals. We're very close to being done on that. That will be out about a year from now. Phil has uh, just this summer come out with uh, a book called Files from the Edge about uh, some of the uh, stranger interdimensional things from his own uh, case files. And um, he has uh, another book on contact um, coming out at the end of this year. I have a um, several books coming out. I have a book on new book on fairies coming out in September, after the gin book. I have a book on the Ouija board. Oh wow! Uh, I I take a look with um, another paranormal investigator, Rick Fisher, on the pros and cons of the Ouija board. And uh, short take on that, my feeling is it's a tool. It's neutral in and of itself, um, but yet at the same time, the majority of people who, who use it do seem to have negative experiences. And so we're looking at why is that? Are we projecting something onto this device that is coming more from us?
3: makes you wonder. You don't hear too many positive Ouija board stories. <laughs> but, well,
0: not uh, not in modern times. If you go back far enough in the board's uh, hundred, a little over 100-year history, it's, it's quite a different story. We, we may want to explore that in, the, in a whole different show. And then, of course, I have the uh, Spirit Communications book with George coming out next year, too.
3: Wow. How do you find the time to write all these books, Rosemary? I, I mean, geez, there's only so much time in the day.
0: I must have doppelgangers who work for me at night.
1: <laughs>
0: well, I'm uh um, I'm blessed with being a fast writer. Uh I don't have to revise a lot. It seems to come out, you know, in a very organized fashion. Uh and because I specialize in the paranormal, I don't have to reinvent the wheel on every book because all of my research sort of folds into yet another project. So any one project I start, I I have a leg up being able to draw on a lot of uh, previous works. And my own extensive library of several thousand books.
3: Yikes. You're making me jealous here. I think my library only has about... 200 books, so I'll have to catch up with you eventually. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we, we sort of touched on the books that are coming up soon, and uh, what about speaking engagements? Um, where, where, where can people see you live and in person in the next few you know weeks and months?
0: I will be at the at Dragon Con. I do Dragon Con um, now every year. This will be my uh, fourth year at Dragon Con on the Paranormal and Dark Fantasy tracks. I'll be doing some things with John Zappas there, looking forward to that very much. The Mothman Festival in September, the Mid-Ohio Valley uh, Paranormal Conference in Parkersburg, West Virginia, in September. And uh, October, I'm uh, out on the college circuit.
1: Nice, nice.
0: A lot of lecturing. Uh, And, of course, next year I already have paranormal conferences. Uh, committed uh, Phenomenology 103 in Gettysburg, Haunted America East Coast in San Diego in February, Midwest in June, and uh, Cape Cod again uh, probably in September next year. So, uh, you know, things keep me busy. I'm on the move a lot.
3: Yeah, it sounds that way. It must be cool to get to travel all over the country and, and, and see these places and, and meet these people that are interested in, in this strange phenomena.
0: It is exciting research, and uh, I really love what I do. I'm fascinated by the paranormal. I uh, I want my work to make some c- contribution to our understanding of what's going on, and uh, we may not find those big answers in our generation, so to speak, or the next um, 30 or 40 years, whatever, but we can make contributions toward uh, our understanding of uh, what our reality is and what else is out there that we are interacting with
3: yeah well you make a good point too uh, earlier when I asked you about why we haven't gotten to the answers yet but if you look at the history of humankind you know at least we're looking now <laughs> and documenting this and, and have established a uh, a quasi science if you will of the paranormal which is you know a far cry from hundreds of years ago when it was still just generally mysterious and and people really hadn't didn't have that collective uh, field, if you will. So you know we're making progress, and hopefully the next generation can come along and, and start unlocking these secrets.
0: We are fortunate uh, to live in this intellectual climate, uh, even though we have institutions and factions of society that uh, criticize or, or or ridicule the paranormal. Uh, we are still free to pursue the research, and that, as you just pointed out, Tim, has not always been the case.
3: Absolutely. Well, Rosemary, we're at the end of our allotted time here, and I want to thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate all the insight you've given me here on not just your research, but your amazing career in the world of the paranormal. I'm just really amazed by it and have just a huge amount of respect for you for the sheer breadth of areas you've covered and the seriousness you've given all the different genres We need more people like you in the field who are examining all the different stuff and trying to connect the dots. And the sooner we start drawing those lines, I have a feeling the sooner we'll get to the bottom of these mysteries. And someday we'll look back and and definitely uh, people will owe a great debt to you for helping to draw those lines between the dots. And it's been a thrill to have you on the program. Obviously, we'll definitely have you back on the show in the future to cover a whole host of different topics as well. So thank you once again for coming on with All of America Audio.
0: And thank you, Tim. It's been great talking with you about these things. I mean, you asked some really good questions. I think we got into a lot of very interesting areas and in some depth, too.
3: That does it for the Rosemary Ellen Giley portion of this week's edition of BOA Audio. Big, big, super huge thanks, of course, to Rosemary for coming on the show. Be sure to check out her website, www.visionaryliving.com. Pretty simple, all one word, visionaryliving.com. Check it out. But wait, there's more before you shut off the program for those folks who just can't stand listening to the end of the show. I know you're out there. I shake my fist like Grandpa Simpson at you folks out there, but I understand. But don't go anywhere just yet because we've got a special pop-in here from good friend of the program, and double speaker at the Exeter UFO Festival, Peter Robbins. I've already plugged the bejesus out of the big event this weekend, but now let's turn it over to Peter Robbins here, as he will really provide an in-depth preview of the festivities in Exeter, as well as reflect on the recent Roswell UFO Festival. As I said at the beginning of the show, folks, If you can't attend the Exeter UFO Festival, you definitely still want to stick around here and listen to the conversation between me and Peter because I had a lot of fun catching up with him and talking about UFO festivals in general. So without any further ado, let's roll you into the next part of this week's edition of BOA Audio. Peter Robbins returns to the program to preview the Exeter UFO Festival. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got a special guest here popping in at the end of the program for a little discussion on a previous event of this summer and a big event that's coming up. It's our good friend Peter Robbins. He's back here on the program. He was on earlier this year, back in January, talking about his paper on exopolitics, disclosure, all that stuff. But now we're talking about the festival scene and a couple of big festivals. Uh, as I said, one that's already happened and one that's coming up. So welcome back to the show, Peter. It's great to uh, talk to you again. Hi, Tim, and it's wonderful to be back on. And as I teased here, of course, you were intimately involved with the Roswell UFO Festival back in uh, July, July 4th weekend. And we've got the big Exeter UFO Festival coming up on September 4th in Exeter, New Hampshire, and I'll be a part of that as the MC. And, of course, you'll be not only doing a presentation of your own but also doing a separate presentation via Dean Merchants research so you got quite a busy plate there on
2: uh September 4th. Yes, indeed. As you know, uh, for the past four years, I've I've worked for the city of Roswell, uh, New Mexico, as a consultant and advisor on building responsible UFO tourism and also as a coordinator of their yearly conference or symposium. And um, this year's I would have to rate as a tremendous success. Uh, The symposium was one of the best I've ever been associated with. It ran for two full days It had a tremendous roster of speakers, and um, one of the things I'm proudest of is that absolutely every presenter, from uh, myself to uh, Rich Dolan, my gosh, it was quite a pantheon of of speakers that we had, all addressed Roswell from differing points of view, the historic, the scientific, uh, the cultural impact that it's had uh, on, on the world at large. Uh, and this, of course, was part of a larger four-day festival. The world of UFO festivals is fairly elite at this point. There are only three of them, um, and they are all associated with municipalities in the United States that can claim uh, righteously to have had highly significant UFO events in their past. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of my colleagues have differed with me on um, their attitudes toward anything, with the word festival in it, that uh, aligns itself with the subject of UFOs, as Uh, One friend whose name every one of your listeners probably knows if they follow the UFO scene said to me some time back, the subject of UFOs is simply too serious to be allowed to uh, be dealt with in a, quote, festival atmosphere. And I felt that way, Tim, myself until 2003 when myself, along with Stan Friedman, had been invited to speak for the McMinnville, Oregon UFO oh, yeah. Festival and Conference. Uh, McMinnville, of course, an important 1950 event, which resulted in several of the finest uh, unqualified uh authentic UFO photographs ever taken. Uh, McMinnville in May completed its 11th annual UFO Festival, and wow. many folks don't realize that Oregon, which is known for being a very progressive state in the best sense of the word, is probably the third or fourth most economically strapped state in the union right now, and that's saying a lot given the bad economic times we're in. Mm. The reason for that is because they're completely associated their economy with the timber industry and housing starts are flat. I bring in this non-UFO-related information because it's become important to me personally where i'm able to work with a town a city or a village um that wants to build its economy by building UFO-related tourism, where appropriate, in a responsible way, and to educate people while we entertain them. And Roswell, I guess, is emblematic of that, as is uh, certainly McMinnville at this point. There are a lot of kid-friendly things, a lot of family activities. A lot of it is just good, even silly, fun. But in Each one of these three annual events, there is a serious conference. And I have no problem with that schizophrenia that that festivals elicit in terms of doing, you know, as long as it's not mean-spirited or mocking, and none of these events are uh, in that sense. I I think Roswell was a great success. We drew over 10,000 people. Oh, wow. and had a a film festival, and contests, and bands, concerts straight through that four days, Um, the tab very heavily underwritten by the city. In going into Exeter, we're dealing with a festival in its infancy in a beautiful small town in New Hampshire, Uh, I think one of the most beautiful I've ever seen, and Lord knows New England is up against the wall right now financially. Uh, if the Exeter Conference over the next years can become an annual event and help build uh, traffic to their community um, year-round and at the same time on a yearly basis help to educate folks in the area and visitors from all over the place about the deadly seriousness of this subject. Um, as a footnote, Tim, uh, the reason that Exeter is not nearly as well-known as it should be has to do with the fact that the very first sightings that constitute the 1965, uh, uh, September 65 incident at Exeter, the object in question was seen by military personnel at Pease Air Force Base. And the next day, when the media started contacting the base as a source of responsible information to confirm the civilian reports that were coming out and the police reports that were coming out. They flat out denied it (laughs) and the media bought it. And so the subject was easier to subdue and hide and get lost in the mists of time, although now we know how real it actually was. Absolutely, yeah. And it's commendable, I think, that your the one who's sort of spearheading this grassroots
3: community adoption of their UFO history, because, uh, you know, I know your heart and your mind is in the right place. You're not somebody who's coming into town saying, hey, listen, we can make a lot of money off of this, so let's, <laughs> well, let's I, adopt yeah. UFOs. So, I mean, I, you're the guy we need doing this kind of stuff, so it's it's, it's, it's Thank good stuff. Thank you, brother. Um, the fact is, of course, as you and I know
2: all too well, by looking at our income tax every year, this is a terrible way to make a living. <laughs> That's and, for sure. Yeah, and one of the things that I absolutely love about the chartering of this incident last year is our plan is, as we are able to actually make money in this community for this community, all profits beyond expenses, beyond what individual merchants may make on that weekend with a lot of visitors. All profits will be donated every year to various child services in New Hampshire, and it doesn't get much more honorable or better than that, or it's also uh, as a byproduct a way of shutting up the uh, total debunkers who, um, you know, will point to the financial gain that folks like you and I are realizing. Uh, It's nonsensical, and in fact, I'm doing this job for no money at all because I believe in it and because I'm not a very practical person.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not getting paid to host the event either. So, I mean, you you just throw in what you can to help out. I mean, the opportunity to be a part of it, and as you said, Exeter is just – you don't want to leave once
2: you get up there. It's that nice. It's just Oh, my gosh. It really is. And, you know, we built a terrific one-day conference and entertainment program for the day, and it's, it's certainly worth our while to take a minute or two to review it. Um, our leading draw, of course, is the beyond-legendary Stanton T. Friedman, um, arguably, along with Bud Hopkins, the most famous presence in the world of UFO research and investigation in the world bar none. And Stan Bless's heart is going to be there as our keynote speaker. Um, Steve Fermani, who is the director of New England MUFON and working very hard behind the scenes to help make this event a success, will also be speaking on uh, MUFON's work in uh, the area. Um, and he is not just the state section director, he is New England's section director. I'll be, um, you mentioned uh, uh, our friend Dean Merchant and the fact that I'll be giving a talk for him. Um, Dean's health makes it a problem for him to actually do this, um, and I did this for the very first time in my life that is, present another person's paper. Um, while I was in the position that you're going to be next month, basically, emceeing the Roswell UFO Symposium. And Dean, bless his heart, has done a remarkable job of researching an area of study that's kind of fallen between the cracks. Uh, most folks even in the field don't realize that when the 509th atomic bomb wing, famous for the fact that in the summer of 1947, They were the only nuclear strike force in the world and they were stationed out at the old Roswell Army Airfield. Uh, hence they became involved in the story immediately. When they wrote, when they were, uh, transferred, the unit was transferred out of Roswell. They were, uh, transferred across the country to the Pease Air Force Base in New Hampshire, uh, forming in a way, um, the second part of the nuclear component of what's now called the nuclear triangle. The first aspect is um, the uh, nearby shipyards, which uh, specialize now in nuclear submarine work, and now the big nuclear power plant all very close together. But when they transferred across the United States in 58, UFO activity followed. And what Dean has done a yeoman's job of in his uh, research is bringing to the fore connections between the 509th and UFOs, the incident at Exeter in 1965, the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case, uh, not far from where we'll be having our festival and conference in 61, and the original uh, Roswell incident. And I'll tell you what, um, you know, you're going to hear the talk in a couple of weeks, but it quite blew my mind. And um, Dean was also kind enough to let me do a certain amount of rewriting to make the paper uh, expressible in spoken terms rather than written terms. It is something of a different. Uh, we'll also be um, opening for business and having our first installation of a member in the newly chartered Exeter UFO Hall of Fame, and I think that's going to be a particularly moving event because the key, first, most famous eyewitness, Norman Muscadero, will be honored, and I believe it's his brother and his son who will be accepting the award in his memory. Uh, I'm also delighted to announce that we have an old colleague of mine I haven't seen in some years, Phil Imbrovno, who has uh, been a major quiet, methodical, scientific UFO researcher in New England going back for many years, Uh, and also one of the great scholars on one of uh, my favorite mysteries um, in North America, a uh, a perfectly preserved, I think just post-Neolithic, enclave of activity and structures uh, and standing stones and monuments called America's Stonehenge, which also is not that far from the site of these events. Um, I'm going to be giving a talk on um, a very personal reflection and reevaluation on Russia's best-known um, close encounter of the third kind, the so-called Voronos uh, incident of 1989, and it's personal to me partly uh, with my background as an American of Russian descent, but also early on having linked up and become friends with a local a Voronosh, uh scientific investigator on the ground then. And my paper will draw from our correspondence as well as the research um, that I've put together. So um, the speakers lineup, um, and we may even have one other, we're not sure, uh, will be very full. Um, and from there, the kids' activities and the family-friendly stuff will take place all over town. Um, again, why should you come? Um, if you can come out of your way uh, and enjoy this beautiful part of the United States at a perfect time of year. Uh, we would love to have you there. I'm, I'm delighted that if the the um, attendance is anything like last year, it will be overwhelmingly uh, folks who are not like you and me, obsessed with this subject, regular pragmatic New Englanders with open minds and uh, good skeptical sense of inquiry, Um all of the presentations will be absolutely free of charge, as will the other events, uh, the local merchants, restaurants, uh, fraternal organizations are turning out to support this event in every way that they can. But if you are intellectually curious, if you want to have a wonderful day or weekend in a beautiful part of the States, if you want to have an opportunity to hear some extremely compelling presentations by very qualified speakers get up close and personal with them pick up some books hang out and the day will end with an absolutely wonderful um, band performance concert dance whatever you want to call it (laughs) in the old town hall and as you know Tim um, even if you you don't care about UFOs if you care about American history come and see this town hall it's drop-dead gorgeous Civil War era uh, three-sided balcony like an old Quaker meeting house. its uh, I, I'm, I'm a history buff, so for me these things really matter. But come, support this event, help this community, educate yourself, have a good time. Meet me, meet Tim, Stan, uh, Phil. Um, Kathy Martin will be there, bless her heart. Um, Kathy, of course, is one of our greatest assets in ufology. She's... Um, co-author of Stanton Friedman, with Stanton Friedman, of the book Captured about the uh, Hill abduction case, and she is the niece of Betty and Barney Hill. She will be behind the scenes, uh, available at chat with, she's helping out as an organizer, and we're so happy that she's going to be part of this as well. Yeah,
3: it's going to be amazing, and the point that uh, you made that I just want to even emphasize again, folks, is that this yeah. is free. This is a free event. I mean, to to see Peter Robbins, Phil Imbrogno, and Stan Friedman for free is just an amazing opportunity for people in the New England area and beyond who can make the trip. You know, at some conferences, you might have to shell out 50 bucks to see that kind of
2: lineup, you know? At least. And I, I am just so proud to be involved with this event because I think in these ways of creating an event, helping to create an event that will go on. Um, You live beyond yourself. You contribute to um, the public knowledge. Uh, You give people an opportunity, again, to educate themselves while they have a good time. And... What can we say besides this? Um, it doesn't get much better. Join us if you possibly can. If you have any questions about the event, you can go right to our information website, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's Exeter, that's E-X-E-T-E-R, net, and you'll get all the latest comings and goings, information on anything that you'd need, uh, if you're planning on coming we're just interested in looking into, uh, joining us, uh, the first weekend of September. You almost got it. It's exeterufofestival.com. Ah! <laughs> well, there we go. Thank you. That is a big difference. Um, to, uh, quote my favorite author, the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. Thank you. Mr.
3: <laughs> For sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and this town, I mean, I can't put it over enough. It's just an amazing place. It's like stepping into the nineteen fifties. You really get a feel for what it was like back then. And yeah. I mean, right on Main yeah. Street, there's like a toy store, and it's not like a Toys R Us or a KB. It's like John Smith's toy store. And it's, you know, you might, they probably have hobby horses in there and all kinds of fun stuff. You so. know, we
2: should also add um, for uh, readers of popular fiction, especially those of us that are hooked on conspiratorial ideas which are rooted possibly in history. Um, a little no name writer named Dan Brown uh lived in that community when he wrote a book that maybe one or two of you have heard of called uh the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> and there is a local bookstore there above which he was living at the time, and if you're like me and a book maniac and bibliophile and manic book collector as well as avid reader, that may be your one chance to pick up a, a signed book by Dan Brown, uh, who keeps an affiliation with this bookstore. So there's any number of reasons, plus the surrounding area is jaw-droppingly beautiful. You can take your own UFO tours. We're working right now on a guided tour of the area that would cover the incident at Exeter and the Hills event, but there'll be plenty to do, plenty of nice folks to speak with. Everything is modestly priced by the standards that I know I'm used to, uh, whether it's a meal or a hotel room or, um, you know, whatever else you're planning on doing. So please come, and if you're listening now and you do decide to show up, introduce yourself to me and to Tim, and uh, we will introduce you to Stan and make sure that you have uh, as much fun as humanly possible within the law. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. We're only we're bound by the law though, folks. So, yes,
3: absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah, Peter alluded to it and I just want to sort of mention too that, you know, for a lot of these events, it's I mean, for a lot of these like sort of UFO events, it's it's so serious and it's so into UFOs that it's like you, you know, you don't want to bring your kids to this unless they're into this. But yeah. like listen to some of the stuff they have for kids at the festival. They're gonna, there's going to be buckets of chalk around town, so little kids can, you know, draw UFO drawings and stuff on the sidewalk. Beach rock painting, face painting, a debris field thing that's been constructed by the kids in town. Uh, UFO construction contest, costume contest, alien pet costume contest, children's ET yeah. costume contest, and as Peter said, uh, an Earthlings and Aliens ball to sort of end the night with uh, New England... Yeah. Famous band, the fact,
2: Morlocks. For a fact, um, as a uh, devotee of classic rock, um, the band that is going to be playing, I think, think they're called the warlocks i forget but i heard them last year and they were rocking we had a great time and really banged those beams around in the old town hall Uh, a very nice way to uh, neutralize the serious effects of earlier in the day (laughs) that's for sure yeah yeah so you know if you're bumming around here
3: at the end of the summer and you're kind of wondering what to do with the kids you know this is the perfect opportunity you know your kids can have some fun You can learn about the UFO subject and meet some of these people and meet some of these big names. I mean just like I said, to see Stan and Peter and Phil for free and to get a chance to meet them and stuff is just such an enormously awesome opportunity that I'm really proud to be a part of and proud to have a hand in trying to We're really happy to
2: have him, really and truly, without your work here, I'm I'm just not sure how well we'd be able to promote it. And for us, it'll just be a chance to get together and have some fun again as well.
3: Absolutely, yeah. I'm looking forward to reconnecting with you again. It's going to be awesome. Uh, so, yeah, I think that just about does it. The website once again is ExeterUFOFestival.com. It's all over, been uh, all of America as well for folks who go to the website. And uh, let me spell that once more: Exeter, E X E T E R. UFOFestival.com. All the information is there. Totally free event and awesome speakers, lots of fun for the family as well, and just the perfect opportunity for people. So you definitely want to check it out if you're within driving distance or you want to make the trip, for sure. Beautiful, Tim. And uh, let me thank you once again for coming back on the show for this pop-in. Peter, I'll see you in a few short weeks and I'll be talking to you, of course, uh, as the event gets closer, but it's great to have you back to talk to the BOA Audio listeners.
2: A pleasure, Tim, and uh, let's do this again when the weather cools down. Absolutely. Okay, brother. That does it for
3: this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 5 in total. Want to give big, big, super huge thanks, of course, to Peter Robbins for coming on here at the end of the program to pop in and preview the big event in Exeter this weekend. If you want to find out more about that, of course, check out www.exeterufofestival.com e-x-e-t-e-r-u-f-o-festival.com. Hope to see a whole slew of BOA Audio listeners at the big event. And, of course, once again, big, big, super huge thanks to Rosemary Ellen Giley for coming on the show and appearing as our big guest here on the program this week. You can find out more about her work at visionaryliving.com. Pretty simple, all one word, visionaryliving.com. Check it out. Before we dive into the BOA Audio listener feedback for the final time this year, I want to take a moment and offer a heartfelt congratulations to BOA's own Marla Pena and her husband Enrique on the birth of their son, Alan Mena. It is truly a joyous occasion, and in addition to the heartfelt and encouraging emails I get from folks listening to BOA Audio and supporting this website, it's moments like this that make this at-times-difficult gig of running the BOA franchise so worthwhile. So once again, congrats to Marla and Enrique. Welcome to the world, Alan Mena. May you see things that we could only imagine. May you live in a world beyond our wildest dreams. And of course, may you stay forever young. And now let's move on into the final edition of of BOA Audio listener feedback here for Season 5. And since it is our last chance to hear from the awesome BOA listeners, I really wanted to go hog wild on this one. So we've got four emails running the gamut of different stuff. So let's just dive in and get cooking on these. The first email comes from Jim, no hometown listed. And here's what he has to say. Just listened to your most excellent interview with Bruce Maccabee. The quality of experts and witnesses you present is exceptional. Just a few possible suggestions for future interviews. Colby Landrum, and or the doctor who treated Betty Cash for her injuries. It seems as if the original medical records for the family, which may have mysteriously disappeared, would represent powerful evidence in the Cash-Landrum case. Number two. Fighter pilots scrambled to intercept UFOs. The Iranian Air Force pilot involved in the Tehran incident is the only one who comes to mind. Number three, Nick Cook of Hunt for Zero Point. He seems a credible source who flashed brightly across the screen and then vanished, so to speak. By the way, thanks for the program featuring Smiles Lewis. I know Smiles in passing. He's an interesting guy. Thanks again, Jim. Well, thank you for writing in, Jim. I'm glad you enjoyed our interview with the legendary Bruce Maccabee, And thank you for sending in your guest suggestions. You've really issued a challenge to me here with the first two, Colby Landrum, as well as fighter pilots scrambled to intercept UFOs. But I will put both concepts on the drawing board for Season 6 and see what I can come up with. As far as Nick Cook goes... I think I read his book a while ago when I first got into the esoteric, and he's definitely somebody who'd be interesting to speak to on the program, so I will put him on the list as well for potential guests in Season 6. For those folks who may have missed last week's edition of the program, the reason Jim's sending in some suggestions here is because we put the call out at the end of last week's program, as we do at the end of every season. We want to hear your guest suggestions and topic suggestions for Season 6. A healthy portion of the guests featured each season are the result of suggestions from BOA Audio listeners, and I always hearken back to the now beloved Bruce Ruck's trilogy, which stemmed entirely from a suggestion from a BOA Audio listener, so there's always some gold in there amongst these suggestions, and I want to hear what you folks want to hear on the program, whether it's guests, topics, or just more of this, less of that. I'm interested in all that stuff. So send me your feedback and help shape BOA Audio Season 6 as we get ready to start the pre-production stage of the next era of BOA Audio. Second email is short and sweet, and it comes from Christopher, no hometown listed, and here's what he has to say. How do you download the MP3 segments? Thanks. This is an email I've been getting for a while from people lately, and it's time I address this issue. Uh, I didn't want to really say anything until I got things straightened out, but for now, the half-show MP3s for all episodes prior to this summer are offline, and that is due to an issue with our web host. I can't really say too much more about it. It's just a technical thing. We kind of overloaded their traffic, so they shut down the half-show MP3s. We're still working on a solution to that. But for now, your best bet is to just grab the full-show MP3s if you can. I apologize to folks with dial-up, but I'm going to do my best to find a solution to this between the seasons. Sorry to disappoint you, Christopher. There is no specific solution to that right now, but stay tuned, and hopefully we'll get it straightened out by the time Season 6 kicks up. Next email comes from Shannon in Taylor, Michigan. Here's what she has to say. I just recently discovered your podcast, and I have to say it is by far one of the best of its kind. I've enjoyed almost every episode I've heard. If for some reason I didn't, it was mostly because of the particular subject, which just bored me, or I thought the guest was a boring nutjob. It has never been because of your hosting ability. My faves so far have been The Amish Show, and the comic book episodes. I found them to be far more interesting than I would have ever thought, hence why I enjoyed them so much. I hope you do more shows outside of the paranormal realm about cool stuff from time to time. Thank you very much for all the hard work you do. Your show is a true gem in a sometimes muddy field. Shannon in Taylor, Michigan. Thank you for writing in, Shannon. I really enjoyed your email specifically because you mentioned one of my favorite episodes that barely ever gets mentioned, and that's the Amish episode. Loved that one, and I barely heard anything about it from the BOA Audio listeners. And you raise an interesting point, kind of like what we heard from one of the emailers last week. They don't like us doing the pop culture stuff. You like us doing some of the more peripheral stuff, so... We turn it over to the BOA Audio listeners once again here at the end of the program. What kind of stuff do you want to hear in Season 6? Do you want to hear more peripheral stuff? Do you want to hear weird stuff that sort of is paranormal or it is esoteric, but it's not one of the dead horses that get beaten continuously on paranormal radio, talking about UFOs, conspiracy theory, and all the staples of esoterica? I can almost guarantee we'll definitely be exploring a lot of the tangential, paranormal, and quasi-paranormal areas in Season 6. But there's always areas that I never even would have considered. As Shannon points out, the comic book episodes, that's another one that came from the minds of BOA Audio listeners. So I don't want to beat a dead horse of my own here, and thus I'll just leave it at that. Send me your thoughts on topics you want to hear, especially topics outside of the main pillars of esoterica because I'm interested in hearing what you would like to hear on the program. And now the final email of BOA Audio Season 5 and it is a heartwarming one for me personally and it is truly a humbling one as well. It comes from Afghan Bob in Campstone Herat, Afghanistan. I listened to your latest podcast last night and really enjoyed it, as well as the others I've listened to. I am a Department of Defense contractor working in Camp Stone, Herat, Afghanistan. This is on the west side of the country, about 40 miles from Iran. I retired from the U.S. Army as a lieutenant colonel in 1998. I volunteered to return to active duty in 2006 for a couple years and served in Afghanistan at my own request in 2007. I returned as a contractor in 2009, and will finish up here in December 2010, giving me three years in Afghanistan. I bought the Ruppelt book and others as a boy in the early 1960s. I've had a couple of personal sightings in New Jersey where I grew up. One was soon identified as a blimp with a rolling electric light message display after I reported it to the police. They pretty much laughed it off. The second sighting might have been high-flying birds or not. They were white spots in the sky doing typical UFO maneuvering beyond the physical means of our aircraft. Anyway, I found your website a couple of months ago when my interest in UFOs resurfaced and have recently been researching what I can find on the internet. The only problem I have is that the internet service here is very slow when it is working. A good average is a download of 10 kilobytes a second. Anyway, I've donated to your site and will be a continued listener and reader. I wish I found it sooner. Keep up your enthusiasm and your highly professional work. Afghan Bob at Camp Stone, Herat, Afghanistan. I got this email a couple of days ago and I knew it had to be the final email here of season five. We've beaten the drum week in and week out for international listeners, and then you get an email like this and it just blows your mind. Uh, Camp Stone, Herat, Afghanistan. It is just humbling to know that. In our own little way, we're helping somebody get through their time over there in Afghanistan. And, you know, we're giving Afghan Bob a moment away from the conflict. And that, to me, is just tremendously humbling and brings it all back around to why I do this program. And that is for the entertainment and enjoyment and enlightenment of folks all around the world. So, I mean, I don't know what else to say. I I was really just blown away by this and and taken aback and and left without words here. I wish I could do more about the download speed of the program. Uh, Maybe sometime in the future we can set up some kind of smaller MP3 size for dial-up folks. Uh, You know, definitely something I'll look into in the future. I want to thank Afghan Bob for writing in. Really making my day, making my summer, and in a lot of ways, making my season here for BOA Audio Season 5. Uh, you know, we can put the push pin in Afghanistan now, folks, because we've got Afghan Bob over there listening to the program. Thank you, sir, for writing in. Thank you for your service. Thank you for keeping us safe over there in Afghanistan. And you stay safe as well. Know that the entire BOA nation. Is riding alongside you, Afghan Bob, as you finish up your tour in Afghanistan. Thank you for writing in once again. And with that, we zip up the BOA Audio listener feedback mailbag for one more season coming at you once again next time around in season six. Hopefully, we'll have just a whole slew of new emailers and some old friends emailing in for season six. Want to thank Jim. Christopher, Shannon, and Afghan Bob for writing in. Thank you for your support of the program and for your insights into BOA Audio. Just because we're putting the lid on the BOA Audio listener feedback mailbag doesn't mean I don't want to hear from all you folks out there. I do want to hear from you. How can you get in touch with me? That's very simple. We give out the information at the end of the program here each week, so let's do it one more time. You can email me at boaaudio at hotmail.com. Or just go to banalofamerica.com, ofamericacom and click the contact button. Or you can join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. And, of course, we're on all the different social networking sites, Twitter, Facebook, MySpace, Befriend me, follow me, poke me. It's all good, and I definitely want to hear from all the great BOA audio listeners, no matter how you get in touch with me. And I'll definitely set aside all the interesting, pithy, thought-provoking emails for use in the early episodes of Season 6. Up next, of course, it is the thanks portion of the program. Allow me to roll through the list of the esteemed and infamous BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, our contributing cartoonist Andy Carollin, and our webmaster Jeremy Boston. Bit of a light week at BOA this past week. Only a column from Leslie looking at Leslie Keen's appearance on the Colbert Report. But we've got a couple of new pieces in the pipeline from Regan Lee as well as Rochelle Hawks. So keep an eye out at BOA for those. And I'll do a preemptive thanks right now to the BOA staff who will surely be covering my ass as we go on hiatus between Season 5 and 6. They provide 95% of the content for the website when we go on hiatus, and I'm already very, very grateful to them for that. And as we say week in and week out here at the end of the program, if you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at Been All of America then you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. I've already been talking quite a bit here at the end of the show, so I'm going to try and make this short and sweet here as we wrap things up. It's the part of the program now where I turn to you folks and ask you to help us out and make a donation to Banal of America and BOA Audio. We have amassed some amazingly large bills here as we have produced BOA Audio Season 5, not just with the web hosting, but also the phone calls and the reading materials for some of these guests. And since we're closing the book on Season 5, I'd like to close the financial books on Season 5 and get us at least on an even keel and out of the red as we prepare to start putting together Season 6. So we turn to you and ask for your help. How can you help us out? That's simple. There's two ways to donate to All of America. You can go to the main website, binallofamerica.com, B I N N A L L OF AMERICA.com, and click the PayPal button. That'll bring you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe, it's simple, and it is secure. But let's say you don't trust the internet and you want to donate via snail mail. Well, we can take care of you in that regard as well. Here is the address for the P.O. Box for snail mail donations. Tim Benall, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass. 01866. And let me get real specific for you on that. That is P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, P-I-N-E-H-U-R-S-T, Mass. 01866. All together now, Tim Benal, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass. 01866. And if you send me a snail mail donation, please be sure to include your email address somewhere in there so I can shoot you an email and thank you for your donation. A couple of folks have mailed in donations and not left any means to contact them, and I really want to let them know I appreciate their donation, so be sure to include an email address in the envelope there, with your donation and correspondence. And, as always, folks, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards all of America and BOA Audio to help keep the entire franchise up and running, freely available and commercial-free, for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. And now, the moment that many of you have been waiting for, It is time to announce the guest for the next edition of BOA Audio, which will, of course, be the season finale of BOA Audio Season 5. In keeping with tradition, which sees our final episode of the season as the proverbial showcase of the immortals, BOA Audio closes the book on Season 5 with one of the most requested and anticipated interviews in the history of the program, as we proudly welcome a bona fide global esoteric superstar, the incomparable David Icke. Let me tell you a little bit about this amazing conversation. We taped it a few weeks ago, just before David Icke embarked on a 10-city, 8-country world tour that's going to be going on over the course of the next 12 months. He joins us for an over-two-hour conversation covering a myriad of topics. We're going to get into his infamous reptilian theory as well as the furor that continues to smolder around it. We'll delve into his latest work, which sees the master conspiracist allege that the Illuminati agenda is on the verge of crumbling, and that the moon is an artificial satellite. We'll talk about his notorious Wogan interview from 1991, which saw David Icke become a household name in the UK, much to his chagrin and find out how that changed him personally and professionally. He'll also reflect on his return to Wogan in 2006, as well as his infamous turquoise period of the early 1990s. Along the way, we'll learn what he thinks of contemporary UFO reports, the stagnation of the 9-11 truth movement, and, getting seriously deep, we'll get David Icke's opinion on what he thinks the very nature of God is. It is a truly captivating conversation with a researcher who has transcended the paranormal and achieved a level of fame on par with some of the world's biggest rock stars and entertainment icons. Taking his place among the pantheon of legends previously featured as season finale guests, David Ike joins us for the final episode of Season 5. Don't you dare miss this one, my friends, because it is an epic edition Of BOA Audio. I want to tell you that the season finale with David Icke will be posted next week, but to be honest with you, in light of the big weekend coming up here in Exeter, I'm going to be pretty tied up from Thursday to Sunday, which will take a huge chunk of time out of my upcoming week. So there's a good chance you may be waiting till around September 15th or so for the season finale of BOA Audio Season 5. But don't worry, because we'll definitely have something in the middle there to keep you placated as you wait for this epic edition of the program. It's David Ike, folks, and he finally arrives on BOA Audio, helping us to close the book and say goodbye to Season 5. And on that note, we shut the door on the penultimate edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Once again, big, big, super huge thanks to Rosemary Ellen Guiley, as well as Peter Robbins for appearing on the show. Thanks to all four folks that we featured here on the final edition of BOA Audio Listener Feedback for Season 5. And, of course, thank you, thank you, thank you to the amazing BOA Audio listeners. You guys are the best. You're the fuel that drives the machine. I could just slather you with hyperbole right now, but I'm about to lose my voice if I keep talking, so I gotta wrap things up. Thank you so much for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, when we come at you with the season finale of BOA Audio Season 5, this is Tim Banal, thanking you for listening and signing off.